born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain." Let's ask God by the Holy Spirit to help us understand this part of the Bible together. Let's pray. Father, we do ask now that you would come and do again for us now tonight what you've always promised and the promise that you've always kept, that you would work through the Word by the Spirit, helping us not just to understand these things intellectually, but to really have them sink down deep into our hearts so that we are changed, so that we are conformed into Jesus' image, so that a difference is made over the long haul, and perhaps even in the short haul this week, Father, in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I love this story. I I think that this story about Alexander the Great um, is apocryphal. I couldn't find any documentation that it's a legitimate story. But it's a great story. Know that it's apocryphal. But Alexander the Great, great general, around 300 B.C. or so, um, was hanging out with his generals as they were conquering the known world at the time. And one of his generals had a daughter who was soon to be married. And this general who wanted to please his comrades and his compatriots and all the people that looked up to him wanted to really just throw a lavish party, and an amazing party for his daughter's wedding. But he didn't have the funds, the resources to do that. And so he said to his, his cohorts, the other soldiers in the room, I'm going to ask Alexander for the money that is needed to host this wedding for my daughter. And it turns out that it's just, you know, an absurd amount of money. And the other generals are like, whoa, 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 trust me, you don't want to do that. I mean, this guy's taken over the world for a reason, right? He's got a distinct personality mix. I'm not sure you want to jump into that sort of hornet's nest. But he says, yeah, I'm going to do that anyway. And so he comes into Alexander's presence and he asks him for this vast amount of money to throw a wonderful, amazing wedding for his daughter. And Alexander responded in a way that shocked everyone there that was listening. He said, that is an amazing request. You honor me by making that request to me. And yes, I will grant it to you, and I will grant you twice what you ask for. And so the the general very happily, of course, walks out. And some of Alexander's um, associates at that point say, why did you grant that request? No one thought. You're going to answer him positively. And Alexander said this. He said, that man's request made me out to be both extremely wealthy and extremely generous. It was an honor for him to make such a request to me. I long for my servants and my soldiers to see me in that light. You see, Alexander got what hardly anyone else did at the time that that request says really more about the king, more about the person the request is being made to than it does about the person making the request. You know, God wants you to see him as both extremely wealthy and extremely generous. 
He doesn't want you just to see him that way because you're a soldier in his army. But if you've believed in Christ, you are a part of his family. Listen, like Alexander the Great, God the Father longs for you, friend, for you to take your deepest requests to him, for you to give him and ask of him everything that you can think of and more. And he longs to grant it because he longs as a good father to give you great and wonderful gifts. That's really what St. Paul in this part of Galatians is getting at tonight. Now, as we've been studying this letter, this fascinating letter, this tremendous letter, we've seen again and again and again by way of background that Paul, who had planted these churches in southern Turkey in a region that was then called Galatia, had left, and these new teachers that are known in, in the New Testament as, as the Judaizers had come in, and they had, they had said, we have gospel 2.0, right? We have a, a deluxe upgraded version of the gospel that Paul preached to you, and this is the gospel you should believe and you should follow. Paul got, got some things right, but trust me, this is the version you want, Now, as we all know, if we've downloaded some upgrade on our computer, the upgraded version isn't always better, right? But Paul recognized that as well. And what he said in writing this letter as a response to this new, quote, gospel that the Judaizers had brought into Galatia is that, no, this is in fact not an upgrade. This is not a deluxe model. This is not a better gospel. He says in chapter 1, verse 6, on the other hand, that this is no gospel at all. Paul wrote this letter to tell us again and again and again to hammer home that when you tinker with the gospel, you lose the gospel. When you mess with the core central truth that Paul had proclaimed to the churches in the Galatia and that Paul proclaims to us now through the Bible, you mess with something very, very vital. You mess with your, your own soul. You mess with the heart of what Christianity is. And so Paul has been banging home that point again and again and again. The Judaizers are saying, the Judaizers were saying, Jesus is, he's essential, but he's not sufficient. You also have to observe the works of the law. You must be circumcised. You have to become Jewish. And Paul has said, no, no, no. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And so we've seen in various ways and by use of various analogies, Paul ramming, driving this point into the heads and hearts of the Galatians again and again and again. And tonight he continues to do that. And what he's doing here as we look at chapter 4 is picking up on an analogy that he introduced last time. In chapter 3, verse 26, if you'll look at that, He's reflecting on what the gospel means for us, what the news of Jesus' work means for us. And he says in 326, In Christ Jesus, through faith, you are all sons. Sons of God. And we touched on that very briefly last time we met. And what I want to do tonight is look at that one idea in more depth. Because that's what Paul's doing here in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. So, As we dive into this text, let me just give you the roadmap. I want to make two introductory comments just to orient us to this text itself. And then we're going to look at marks of an orphan and marks of a son. So two introductory comments, then the marks of an orphan and the marks of a son. So let's jump in. Let's see what the Spirit has for us. So look there at chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And as we get going, 
as we sort of figure out where we are, what Paul's getting at here, let me just make a couple of observations by way of introduction. Two introductory comments to this text. First, look in verses 8 and 9. We see very clearly here that Paul is writing to Christians. Now that might be obvious to some of you, but oftentimes we tend to forget that This is a letter addressed to a Christian church, or actually a a number of Christian churches in ancient Galatia. Look at what he says. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? So he's saying, you have had a change in your life. You have come to know God or rather to be known by God. You are a Christian. Something radical and drastic has impacted you. It has changed you. And so, just by way of introduction, he's telling you, Christian, if you're here tonight and you're a Christian, again and again and again, Paul is telling you that of all things you need to hear and think on and ponder as a Christian, the gospel is always primary. The gospel is not just for those who are not yet Christians. It is for those who have been Christians their entire lives. The gospel, we must remember, is not... The the message of Galatians, the gospel message, is, is not just sort of the ABCs of the Christian life. But as many preachers have said, it's the it's the A to Z of the Christian life. It's everything. It's always what we need to hear. So Paul's saying, don't fall into the habit of thinking that justification, being declared right by God, comes through something other than faith, or faith plus works of the law. Don't be confused into thinking that your reception of the Holy Spirit happened for any other reason than you believe the news, the good news, the gospel that I preach to you. Don't fall away from believing the gospel that I taught you, Christian. And that's what he wants you to hear tonight as well. Gospel is something that we must continually strive to hold on to. Because in a sense, it's, it's slippery. It's like holding a bar of soap in the shower. We tend to drop it. We tend to lose hold on it. And Galatians is written for you as a Christian to hold tightly to these core central truths of the gospel. That's the first introductory comment. Okay. The second one is this. Paul's thought here in 4, 1 through 11, is structured around what I'm calling a dual sending. A dual sending. Look in verse 4 with me. This is a famous verse, possibly the most famous verse in Galatians, very appropriate for Advent. We could preach a whole other sermon just on this verse. But for now, look at what it says. When the fullness of time had come, God, and look at the verb, sent. He sent forth His Son. Now, skip down to verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent. Same verb, same tense, the exact same word in the span of three verses occur here in Galatians. And Paul's thought in this passage is completely structured around this dual sending. What he's saying here is that God the Father has has sent both the Son and the Spirit. He's sent them to a place to accomplish a purpose to achieve a specific result. Look at verse 4. He sent the Son, when the fullness of time had come, to the world. He was born of a woman. He was born under the law with the purpose of redeeming, verse 5, those who were under the law, so that with the result that we might, we who believe in Him might receive adoption as sons. 
And then he says that he sent the Spirit, not sort of objectively into the world, but into our hearts. And what's the purpose of God sending the Spirit? The purpose of God sending the Spirit in so many words, Paul is saying, is to give you assurance and confidence that you really are sons. Think about it this way. Um, What Jesus has objectively procured for you, if you're a Christian, by his death and resurrection, the Spirit subjectively makes you feel to be true. What Jesus has accomplished objectively in time and space, the Spirit has been sent to give you a sense that you really are a part of that. Uh, Jesus has objectively made you sons of God if you've believed in Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. You are a son. The Spirit, however, has been sent to make you feel. Yes, a Presbyterian can say that. To make you feel like a son. To give you an experience of what he says in verse 5 of receiving adoption of of sons, which is one word in the original, an experience of sonship. Think about that this way. Thomas Watson, great Puritan that you should all be reading. The Puritans are great for illustrations. He has a wonderful illustration that makes this point very well. Imagine, he says, uh, a son and his father walking in front of you uh, along the street as you're walking to the market or whatever, and they're holding hands with one another. And suddenly, the father picks up the son, just sort of seemingly at random, and gives him a big hug and a a big kiss on the cheek. Now, listen. When the son and the father are walking together, hand in hand, the son is no less a son of the father than when the father picks him up and gives him a kiss. He is objectively, legally, one who holds the status at that moment of walking with his dad as son. But his experience, his feeling of being a son of his dad, when his dad picks him up and gives him a kiss just because he wanted to, is radically different than it was the moment before that. Listen, the Spirit, the Spirit is the kiss and the embrace of the Father upon you to give you a feeling, to give you an experience of sonship. And that's what I want to talk about with you tonight in a few minutes. Because I'm convinced, because I know myself, as Pastor Phil said this morning, I know you because I know myself. I'm convinced that all of us struggle, even if we've been Christians for a long time, to feel like sons. To have an experience of adoption, of sonship. To know, to really have deeply embedded that we are a part of the family of God. I'm convinced that oftentimes we instead feel like orphans. We feel fatherless. We feel far from God. We feel like He's not near to us. We would profess certain things to be true, but they don't really make a difference day to day in our lives. Functionally, we live like orphans. Well, my purpose tonight, and I think part of Paul's purpose tonight as we look at this part of the Word, is to help us to know how to engage with the Spirit so that we can more and more have an experience of sonship, have an experience of the fullness of joy and peace that comes with knowing by the Spirit that we are sons of God. So let's do this together then. 
given those two introductory comments, that Paul's writing to Christians and that he's structuring his thought here around a dual sending, let's look at marks of an orphan or an orphan mentality and marks of a son. So in a sense, the rest of the sermon is, is application based on those just couple of comments that we talked about. What are the first thing we want to look about? Really, we're looking, at, we're looking at how we live like orphans and how we can begin more and more to live like sons. So let's talk just for a couple of minutes here about the marks of an orphan. What are the marks of living like an orphan and not a son of God? Paul sums it up in this text with one word. Slavery. Slavery. Five times in verses 1 through 11, he uses either the noun or the verb form of that word. Verse 1, verse 3, verse 4, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9. He says that the orphan, above all, the one who does not have God as father, the one who is not engaged with the Spirit and cognizant of the fact that he is a part of God's family, is the one who has forgotten the gospel. He's looking to something other than Jesus to free us and to help us. He's becoming engaged with what Paul calls the elementary principles of the world. He's either under the law or he's going after things, as he says in verse 9, that aren't God's. Verse 8, that aren't God's. He's enslaved. The orphan mentality is a mentality, first and foremost, a lifestyle, first and foremost, Paul says, of slavery. So what does that look like? What does it look like? How can you know, as you sort of do a little spiritual self-diagnosis here tonight with me, how can you know if you're struggling with having an orphan mentality? You might know just immediately based on what I've said already, but let me give you six things. Don't be overwhelmed. Six things, though. Listen, I could give you a lot more. I'm struggling just to keep it at six. Okay, Six marks of an orphan. The first mark of an orphan. The first mark that you are struggling with having a functional orphan mentality is that the orphan labors under a burdensome sense of obligation. The orphan labors under a burdensome sense of obligation. What do I mean by that? Marianne has a word for this or a phrase for this that I think sums it up very well. My wife, Marianne. She says that she often operates and we all often operate on what she calls should cycles. And here's how that works. Um, You'll see all these good things that you should be doing, particularly if you're a Christian. You want to live a good life. You want to serve in the church. You want to obey God. You've got this huge list of things you should be doing. You start trying to do them all, do them all, do them all. Check this thing off the list. Check this thing off the box. Cross that out. I'm trying to take care of everything. I've got all these obligations. And what happens? You get burned out. You get worn down. And eventually the cycle circles around where you say, I can't do, I'm not doing any of this well, so I might as well not do it at all. I'm done. And you pull away from community, you pull away from relationships, you pull away from service, and you just sort of give up. And then you start feeling guilty about having given up and having pulled away, and you jump back in. You say, well, I could jump in here, and I could do this, and I could do this. In fact, I need, I need to do this, and this, and this, and this. And you, you have this constant, vicious should cycle. You live constantly under a burdensome sense of obligation. You try too hard to please yourself or others or God and you burn out. You're a slave. You're a slave to some set of rules or laws that constantly condemn you that you can never ever live up to or even satisfy yourself regarding. That's the first mark of an orphan mentality. You labor under a burdensome obligation. The second one is that you're fearful. The unknown haunts you. You have a hard time sleeping at night because you're worried about the kids. 
You're worried about what's going to happen at work this week. You're worried about that relationship that's been breached. You're worried about a fight you got into with your spouse last week. You're afraid. You're afraid of what you don't know. You're afraid of what you can't control. And it makes you neurotic. It makes you fearful. It makes you pull away from intimacy. It makes you do all these things. That's a mark of an orphan. You're afraid. Third mark, you're angry. The third mark of an orphan mentality is that you constantly operate with a critical spirit. No one is good enough for you. No sermon is good enough for you. No community group is good enough for you. No book is good enough for you. No TV show is good enough for you. And that's probably true. But the rest of it's not. You're always angry. You're bitter. You blow up at the smallest little things. There's sort of a low-grade animosity that you feel towards the members in your house. You're just sort of mad all the time. Orphan. It's a mark of an orphan. Burdensome obligation. Fearful. Angry. Next, you're performance-oriented. Everything is about competition for you. You're always trying to one-up the next person in whatever way you possibly can. You live on a succeed-or-fail basis. You always need to look good and to be right. And because that's true, you're, you're defensive. You can't handle criticism. You bristle when someone calls you self-righteous, thereby proving their point. And, and you're, just, you're just always based on proving yourself. You're driven. You've got this neurotic drive to, to sort of conquer the world. And trust me, pastors struggle with this as much as anybody. You might have a neurotic drive to conquer the world for Jesus, but you're completely driven by your own performance, by the standard that you've set for yourself, by the pace that you try to maintain. Orphan. Next thing. You, you constantly swing. You're like a pendulum. And you swing from either excessive self-confidence or, or excessive self-loathing. You're either super, super high, you think you're doing really well, you're, you're struggling with pride, or you feel like you're just a total piece of junk that can't ever get anything right. You're just a mess. I'm, I can't do anything right. And you're just a pity party all the time. Everyone's better than me. I might as well just give up. And it's just a constant pendulum back and forth, back and forth, depending on how you're doing compared to others, depending on how you might feel that day, depending on a conversation you had. Orphan. Final thing, final mark. You have relative prayerlessness in your life. You might pray sometimes in public. You might lead the family in prayer time, but you rarely pray privately. And you hardly ever have spontaneous eruptions of prayer in your car, on a walk, or with your family. You rarely, rarely have prayer that results in sort of worshipful gratitude to God. God feels far from you and distant to you. Prayer is a chore, it's work, it's labor, and you don't really like it. Orphan. Which one of those things do you relate to? Maybe let me ask this. Which one of those do you not relate to? I know for me, when I look at my heart, those things far too often typify the way I live. And those things, friends, those are not unimportant. Those are signs that you're not experiencing sonship. The quote at the front of your bulletin from Andre Nguyen, who's a wonderful priest who passed away a number of years ago, I think beautifully summarizes what I'm trying to say here. Let me just read that for you. Look, you can look at it there on the front. 
He says this, as long as I keep running about asking, do you love me? Speaking to God. Do you love me? Do you really love me? I give all power to the voices of the world and put myself in bondage because the world is filled with ifs. The world says, yes, I love you if you are good looking, intelligent and wealthy. I love you if you have a good education, a good job, and good connections. I love you if you produce much, sell much, and buy much. There are endless ifs hidden in the world's love. These ifs enslave me, just like Paul says, since it is impossible to respond adequately to all of them. The world's love is and always will be conditional. As long as I keep looking for my true self in the world of conditional love, I will remain hooked to the world, trying failing, and trying again. It is a world that fosters addictions because what it offers cannot satisfy the deepest craving of my heart. Listen, all these things are examples of just that. They're examples of ways that we live as if we have no Heavenly Father. And friend, if you're struggling with those things, if those things resonate with you, then let me encourage you to repent and to believe the Gospel. But Paul doesn't just leave us there with a message of repentance, although we do need to do that. He doesn't just leave us with marks of an orphan, with slavery and all the things that enslave us. But he also tells us in this text, and as we elaborate upon the text and take the principles of the text and apply them, about what marks of sonship, what it means functionally and practically to live like a son of God, like an heir, like a family member in God's house. He tells us what that looks like as well. He says in verse 7 of our text, you are no longer a slave but a son. That summarizes it right there. And if you are a son, then you are an heir with God. Paul's point here is to help you know and believe that the Holy Spirit has been sent, friends. He has been sent to help you to believe that verse 7 is true and thereby to live differently. And so we see hints at what it looks like to have the marks of a son. And Paul's saying you must, by the Spirit's help, believe these things. Listen, in a sense, every struggle that you face in life, every single one, all these orphan tendencies that you deal with, they're all struggles of unbelief at root. They all exist in your life because you don't believe the gospel functionally. Yes, you would confess it to be true. You, re, you say the confession of faith every week in church, even if the guy next to you doesn't. You do. But you don't functionally believe it. And so you struggle with these orphan mentalities. You don't functionally believe, you don't really believe that the gospel is true for you tomorrow and today, that you are a son, that you're a part of God's family, that you're completely loved by him. And so every fight against orphan mentalities, every fight against the spirit of Orphanhood is a fight of faith. It's a fight to believe the gospel more. And Paul tells us that. And he gives us some pointers and some signs. And I want to sort of jump off from them to give us some marks of a son. And so I've got six of those for you as well. So based on what Paul said there in verse 7 about how God has freed us from slavery, we should not go back to slavery any longer. We have believed in the gospel. We have come to know God. To revert on that, to regress in that, is to go back again to slavery. It's to enslave ourselves once more, as he says in verse 9. So how can we, by the Spirit's help, stop doing that? How can we experience sonship? How do you know that you're growing in that area? Six things, and then we're done, okay? First, rather than that burdensome sense of obligation, 
Rather than having constant should cycles, the son knows and has confidence that he is pleasing to God already. He uses prayer as a first resort. He cries, as Paul says in verse 6, Abba, Father. He has sort of a daily conscious partnership with God. And so he feels free to pursue good things and even take risks and serve here and serve there without having this overwhelming burden to get everything done. And he also feels free to say no to some things, even some good things, because he has confidence that God's approval of him is not based on him completing the next should cycle. God's approval of him is based on what's already taken place in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. A son recognizes that. He doesn't have a burdensome obligation. It's the first sign of sonship. Second, a son is not fearful. Rather, a son sort of has a, a brimming and pleasant confidence that God is sovereign and that God is good. A son sleeps well at night. A son is not haunted by the unknown. A son believes, he doesn't just say, he's not just a good Calvinist with his words, but he's a good Calvinist in his life, that God is completely sovereign and that God is completely good. A son has sort of appropriated those things in his day-to-day existence. And so fear is something that, yes, from time to time he deals with. But more often than not, it goes by the wayside. Third, a son, rather than being angry, is joyful. Rather than always criticizing others, rather than never being satisfied, he's an encourager of others. He's someone who edifies others. He's someone who who really wants to see other people succeed, maybe even more than he does. He's someone who's excited when his coworker gets the raise and the promotion that he wanted. He's the pastor who's excited when he's been praying for revival and God gives revival to the church down the street. He's excited about that. He's joyful. His spirits are uplifted. He feels that the Holy Spirit is with him. He has, he has a sense of confidence and, and love, sense that he's, that he's loved by God. He's, he's able to keep a short record of wrongs. He reconciles messed up relationships quickly. He's, he's uh, confident in Christ. He's encouraged by the Spirit's work in him. His self-worth comes through Christ's worth. He's not angry. It's a mark of a son. Another one, rather than being performance-oriented, A son is content to know that he is completely loved and accepted by God. A son's self-worth is not derived from his worth. It's derived from Jesus' worth. And so he can get off of the performance treadmill trying to earn more money, trying to have higher status, trying to have a bigger church or better sermons, trying to be a better mom than the person down the street. He's not driven by his own performance. He's driven by Jesus' performance for him. And so he has a quiet confidence. He has a quiet peace. He's able to rest. He's able to relax. He's able to chill out. He's not neurotic. He's not insane. He's not no fun to be around. He's not so competitive that every game is ruined by his presence. It's a mark of a son. Fifth, rather than swinging on the pendulum from excessive self-confidence to excessive self-loathing, the son is the son is balanced. The son is centered. The son knows that he's a big, big sinner. The day you think you're not a big sinner anymore is the day you've forgotten what it means to be a son. The son knows he's a huge sinner, and that protects him from excessive self-confidence from that side of the pendulum. He knows he's a mess. He knows he's not. Arrived. He knows he's a work in progress. But on the other hand, 
he knows that he's loved and accepted by Jesus Christ in the gospel. And so that protects him from excessive self-loathing and from self-pity parties and from always being down and from thinking I can't do anything right. No, he's, he's balanced. He's centered. He has an appropriate and realistic view of his own sin, an appropriate and realistic view of the gospel. And then finally, rather than being relatively prayerless for the son, prayer is a vital, vital part of his life. And I would go so far as to say is that is the primary sign. The son is one who loves to spend time with God. The son is one who spontaneously speaks to God. The son is one who treats God not as Santa Claus, who's there for him when he needs something, or not as a drill sergeant who's going to really get after him if he doesn't do everything right. The son is the one who treats God as a father. He talks to him. He has a relationship with him. The son is one whose prayer life often erupts into worship. The son is one who, when he says, I'll pray for you, really does. Maybe even right there. The son is one for whom he knows, I can't make it through today without conscious communion with God. He feels a nearness to the father. Those are the marks of the son. Those are the marks of one who the Holy Spirit is giving an experience of what Jesus has accomplished for him or her. Those are the marks of one who knows, knows that he is not a slave. He's a son. He knows that there's nothing, nothing he could ever do or not do that is going to make God love him a minutia bit less. He knows, he knows that God is for him and not against him. The promises of the New Testament are not just things that he does in his quiet time. The promises of the New Testament are real and vital every day. Where are you at in your experience of sonship? Jesus wants you to experience it. Paul wants you to to experience it. This church wants you to experience it. If you're not experiencing it, come talk to me. Talk to an elder. If you're not experiencing it, talk with your life group. If you're not experiencing it, meditate upon the word. Meditate upon the promises. If you're not experiencing sonship, repent of your hardness against the Holy Spirit and ask him to renew you and refresh you and enter into your life in new and life-altering ways. Do those things. Because this experience will so fill you with joy and so fill you with peace and so fill you with the reality of God's presence with you that it will change your day-to-day living. There's a famous, well, it's not famous actually, it's a, a actually relatively unknown, relatively unknown tradition in some churches where when the person uh, comes to receive baptism, when an adult is baptized, and they're raised out of the water, the first thing they say is Abba. Abba. And I love that. I love that because Abba is the first word and the primary word of your new life. Is Abba Father? Is the Spirit crying out in your heart, Abba Father, each day of your life? Is that the primary word of your life? If it's not, seek Him while He may be found. If it is, then continue to draw your heart near to Him. Let's pray. Father, we ask now, We ask now that you would send your spirit into our lives. Give us, Father, not just head knowledge that you have brought us into your family, but give us the Holy Spirit, that second person that you have sent. You sent Jesus and you've also sent the Spirit. So give us the Spirit so that we might 
understand and know and have an experience of what it means to be in your family, to have an experience of sonship, to know deep, deep down that we are your children and to allow that to change us, to allow that faith in that message, that belief in the gospel to work its way into our lives and and blot out those orphan-like tendencies, those things that tend to enslave us, those things that cause us to regress and to bring into fresh and new light the great and glorious message of what you have done for us in sending Jesus and in sending the Spirit. And now, Father, as we come to the table, we do ask that you would help us, help us not just to know these things, but to experience these things as you are at work right now through the Son and through the Spirit. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite our elders.